right, good morning. It's great to see everybody today. It's good to be back. I was away. I don't know if you noticed or not. So it's going to be a long one. I've got some things to correct from the past two messages today. No, I'm just kidding. Those were fantastic. I was tuning in online, participating, and so it was so, so good. So good. Um, so hopefully you were able to catch that. We're finishing up our series today uh, where we're talking about uh, the winner's circle, right? Raise your hand if you just grew up thinking, I want to be a big loser. That's just what I want to do. I want to lose in life, right? So we've been talking about like different ways in which we think about greatness and how our world tells us greatness. One of the things that our world tells us is like the path to greatness comes through what we own, right? The, the things that we have will say, hey, you made it. You are great. Look at the boat. Look at the, look at the stuff. Look at the car. Look at the garage, right? And, and the path to greatness is amassing the right stuff. But here's what I've learned, and maybe you've learned this, that ownership, right? You, how many of y'all own something, right? Own something. Let me tell you something about that which you own. Ownership ends all of it does at death, Right? It just ends. Ownership is a fleeting facade, right? It ends with death. And nothing illustrated this to me more than what I spent the past week doing, uh, working kind of remotely from Indiana and helping with an estate sale for my mother-in-law and her family uh, with all of this stuff that a lifetime amasses from my father-in-law who passed away a few years ago. And he collected things and he had a business. And in a matter of seven hours, it was all gone ownership ends. And it's not to say that there, wasn't, there was something wrong with owning. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if we think this path to greatness is about ownership, then greatness at one point in our lives will just end because ownership ends. It ceases to exist. Another thing that we're told the path to greatness is, is that it comes through our credentials and the titles we earn, right? The titles that we earn. Um, most people call me Ryan. That's just kind of you know, but if you're familiar, like you live in like church world, people will call you reverend sometimes, they'll call you pastor, they'll call you some other things too via email, but uh, we won't go into that so much, but uh, I've been called lots of things, you know, but those titles we're proud of, right? The letters at the, maybe the end of your name, right? Whatever it might be, or the letters at the beginning of your name, right? Those titles, there's something about our culture and our world that says that's a path to greatness. But here's another thing that's fascinating about credentials. They end upon death right? Like all the titles that we have, all of the, the letters after our names, all the, the degrees, all that stuff, it just ends at death. And while there is a sense of greatness to it, right? I mean, let's face it, there is a sense of greatness, a sense of success with those things, but they end. And here's what's interesting about credentials like that, like credentials that come with letters and titles and things like that, that actually perpetuates a real struggle in our culture and in our world. Because Titles and credentials, at the end of the day, they just kind of continue to prop up division, right? It just props up division. It separates the, those who have and those who have not. Even though it ends at death, right, there is a legacy to that type of greatness, right? There's this constant reality that there are groups of people in the world, ones that have titles and ones that don't have titles. There's winners and there's losers. There's the deserving and there's the undeserving, and all these things are temporary greatness. And kind of the tagline for this series was talking about Jesus' unlikely path to greatness, right? So we're a church. I know that's confusing. Some people don't believe it still, but we are, right? And the idea is to look and, and, and learn from, as a Christian community, the example of Jesus. 
And Jesus does, does offer this path to greatness. And that's kind of been the tagline, and we've been looking at it from different angles over the last three or four weeks. And, and today, as we talk about and as we conclude it, we want to talk about this long-term idea of greatness, right? This idea that you can have a greatness that lasts beyond the grave, that it's a greatness that is, is far surpassing of titles. It's a greatness that is far surpassing of ownership because when death comes, right, that this greatness that Jesus offers us will continue to live on. Now, here's the thing, though. You've got to recognize that this path that Jesus gives us, first of all, it's not popular, kind of like me in junior high and high school, right? Not, not a whole lot of room for it at the lunch table with the cool kids, okay? It's not easy, right? Jesus and, and the gospel writers would talk about a narrow path, right, that's hard to find, that many don't follow. And oftentimes this gets kind of, I think, applied and, and, and used as like this way to get into an afterlife right? An eternity where there's streets of gold and we're the ones that made it, right? But I think when we really look at the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, and we really look at the exemplary nature of what the gospel writers are giving to us, there's something far deeper than this idea of a prayer that we pray and a heaven we get to go to. There's a path, a way of living, a way of life that produces greatness, that produces a kingdom of God, right? Kind of mindset. So I want to look at a passage of Scripture today that can offer us some wisdom on this, and it's found in this little letter called Philippians. So Philippians is a letter, if you're new to kind of Bible or church world, and, and uh, you're like, oh no, here we go, the Bible. I don't know about this. You had me with the, the ownership stuff, but now you're talking about the Bible, I'm not in. Well, here's the thing, I'm not going to give you any rules to follow today, don't worry about that. We're going to look at some wisdom, and there's this beautiful hymn, a poem, that the Apostle Paul put into a letter that he wrote to a community of people much like this, who are trying to figure out how to follow Jesus, who are trying to figure out what does it mean to live a life that honors the big idea of God in this world. And in Philippians chapter 2, he kind of inserts probably what is one of the oldest kind of Christian hymns or poems or really kind of affirmations about who was Jesus, right? Very, very early in the history of our faith tradition. And it starts off like this. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, if then there is, and oh, by the way, you should know he's writing this from prison. So it's just a point to remember. He's writing this in prison. He says, if then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the Spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, right? In other words, he's saying if there's anything good in us, right? If there's anything good about the community that we've created, he makes this really interesting statement. He says, make my joy complete. In other words, like, don't make my work worthless, <laughs> Right? I have so much joy for what I see in you as a community. But if there is any of these things that I hope there's, I just want you to do one thing, he says. He says, make my joy complete, and here's how you do it. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he says the same thing twice because he's a good Hebrew. He likes to repeat himself. Right? If, if and also, like, do it this way. And if, I'm going to say it again. Do it this way, right? And so Paul's in prison. He's facing a, a, a moment of crisis in his work. Y'all ever done that? Y'all ever worked really hard and sat back and said, was it worth it? Right? You've said, I've poured my heart and my soul into this. I've done this for years. And you ask yourself that big question, was it worth it? Do I even continue on? 
And it's fascinating, Paul in prison, having traveled all around kind of the Mediterranean, starting these communities, believing he was organizing people to change the world, he's faced with this existential crisis. Was it worth it? If there is any of these things that I believe to be true in these communities of faith, what is it that really, really matters? And he says, if it's going to be worth it, I just need these communities to be centered on one thing and one thing only. One thing. See, Paul believed that his suffering, he believed that all the sacrifice that he had made in his career and in his life would be worth it under one condition only. He wanted the fruit of his work in the Philippian church to be focused and to produce one thing that everybody understood and believed that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. And that's literally how it happened. You know, Paul never, he doesn't even talk about that. He thought everybody needs to fully understand exactly how the cross works, what Christ crucified. Everybody's got to be on the exact same page. Everybody has to believe exactly the way I believe. No, he doesn't talk about that at all. Like this one condition, this one thing is not just like this idea of being unity, but it's this idea of this word, be of one mind, right? That's the key. So he says, I need you to be of one mind. So basically, he's saying you should check your intellect at the door. Don't ask questions. No, he's not saying that at all. Here's what he's saying. He says, be of one mind. And then he starts to kind of like explain a little bit about what this one mind looks like. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. Right? Don't do anything, for that. but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you not look out for your own interests, but to the interest of others. And everybody's like, wah, wah, I'd rather believe everything about the cross and the virgin birth and the wise men that showed up and there were only three of them. And I'd rather believe all that stuff. Just give me a list of things I have to sign and believe, but please don't make me think other people are more important than me. This is crazy talk. It's fascinating that the Apostle Paul, who, I mean, was committed, right? Sometimes to a fault. I know, I know you're not allowed to say that Paul wasn't perfect, but he wasn't. And I think the beauty of some of his letters is we see his imperfections. But Paul believed in this like existential crisis moment. Is all the work worth it? Has my suffering been worth it? He believed there was one thing that would ruin it all. And it was selfishness. Selfish ambition would destroy the work of God. That's what he believed. And so he's, he's writing this letter and he's saying, listen, listen, listen. Come on, please, please, please. My own life is a testimony to how selfish ambition will destroy the work of God. If you read Acts chapter 22 or Galatians 1, in Galatians 1, it's actually Paul's words of his kind of conversion, his experience with this resurrected Jesus. And Acts 22 tells the same story. But we learn from these moments that Paul was well-educated. He was politically connected. He was zealous, hungry for approval, on his way to power. And yet in all of that success, in all of that greatness, he was completely working against what God was doing in the world. And he was following his religion to a T. The right religion too, according to Paul. I mean, he was good at it. But then he encountered Jesus and everything changes. And then in Philippians chapter 3, like just a few, few sentences after this, he kind of talks about this reality of like his success. And he said, if anybody else had reason to be confident in the flesh, in other words, if anybody had greatness like this world would want, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Come on, Benjamites, where are you in the house? Like, yes, 
That's who I was. A Hebrew born of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness of the law, blameless. You couldn't find anyone greater than Saul at the time who was on their way to the top. And listen to what he says. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. In other words, he says, all that greatness that I was pursuing, I had lost time in it. It was lost time. It was wasted time. All the people I could have been serving, all the things I could have been doing to be partnering with God in this world, it's actually a loss. It's not a win. I put it in the win column. People still put it in the win column. I put it in the loss column. And then he says, more than that, I regard everything as loss, all of that stuff because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things. And he says, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. In other words, I've emptied myself of all that greatness because there's only one thing, one thing that is worthy of my time and my attention, and that is that I could gain Christ. And that's so much more than like this intellectual assent to understanding. It's gaining, it's living, it's reflecting. It's a life not lived towards the greatness of this world, but a life lived towards the greatness of the kingdom of God where everyone has a seat at the table where everyone has a beautiful contribution to make. And so God completely changed Paul's definition of success. And so when Paul's writing this, when he's, 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 he's giving everything he can to the Philippians, saying, come on, people, if there's one thing that's going to make this worth it, right, we got to keep that in mind. In his own life, he sees all this greatness that he had and that even more greatness that he could have had, but now it's all a loss. It's all wasted time. So if we go back to Philippians chapter 2, he says this about the one mind. Right? Remember, he said, let's be of one mind. Well, what does that mean? He says, let the same mind be in you, plural, you as a community that was in Christ Jesus. Okay, now we're starting to dig in, right? So this is what it's supposed to be like. Let the same mind, and though he existed in the form of God, this is where it gets super trippy, okay? Right? Like, we're, we're trying to figure out the greatest mystery in the history of, like, the faith, okay, the incarnation. So let's not get caught up on the, we're going to get it all figured out today, okay? But he's saying, listen, this, this reality, this idea, this belief that at the beginning, there was this existent reality that was a part of what Paul would call God, the Hebrews would call God, Yahweh. And that existent reality was in the form of God, had all the privileges but didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to, not to be grasped as in you're grasping for something, but to hang on to it, right? That reality, that, that, like, that bigness, that, that, that fullness, he said he didn't hang on to that divinity, but what? Poured out, emptied itself, that Christ emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, so not only does this divine reality humble itself into humanity, now as a human being, humbles itself even more to obedience and death on a cross. Whew. I don't know how you empty yourself out anymore. So there's this reality, this preexistent fullness of God right? Paul's trying to make sense of it all. And he says this, but this preexistent reality didn't grasp and hold on to its divine privilege. It set itself aside. It poured itself out for love, became obedient to what? Became obedient to love, 
right? Not obedient to some demand of an abusive father who needed sacrifice, but a demand to love and shape human hearts, even obedience to death. And so you see the mind of Christ that Paul is calling the Philippian community to, and by nature of our understanding of, hey, this document, this letter is something precious for us, is a radical commitment to humbly serve and obey the demands of love. Like, that's it. For Paul, that it's all worth it. It's all worth it. And here's what Paul says. He says, therefore, since Christ was fully embodied in Jesus, therefore God exalted Jesus, the human Jesus, even more highly than before. I don't even know what that means. Come on now. Like, I don't care what degree you've got. Good luck with that. How do you get elevated more highly than preexistent reality as God? Okay, so we can all take a breath and just be okay. We're never going to figure that one out. But Paul's like, now there's something even more beautiful, more precious, more powerful. Because God, now we're getting into really weird, like, but wasn't, wasn't this preexistent reality God? And now, wait, so, so God made Jesus? I'm very confused. My head hurts. Which is why doctrines are a little problematic, okay? That's why Jesus said, hey, listen, let's just love our neighbor. Let's love God as we love ourselves, love our neighbor, and we'll call it a day, right? So in all of this, right, God elevates, according to Paul, like now more highly exalts him and gives Jesus the name that is above every other name. What name is that? I don't have any idea. Just so that the name given to Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, right? Remember, this is like pre-enlightenment reality, the, the place of the dead was under the earth. In other words, everybody's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, <laughs> I think it's a fascinating question. Like, what name? What name was he given? But whatever that name is, right? there's lots of speculation, but whatever that name is, it is the greatest name ever, and it's a name that draws everyone, that says everybody's present. It's, the, it's got to be the name of love. Like, it's got to be that. Like, I don't know. It can't be the divine name of the Hebrews, because the divine name of the Hebrews represents, even in the Hebrew Scriptures, things that are incorrect about God, and Jesus reveals that. I've got to imagine that the greatest name that was given to Jesus was the full embodiment of love. And so Jesus, it's so fascinating to me that Jesus becomes the greatest, according to Paul, like the greatest ever. Finish the word, I don't know. He's the greatest ever. He gets exalted above the preexistent reality, given a name that's not named, but every other name is subversive to. This is Paul's understanding of what he wants to flip. This is great. But here's the thing. So Jesus becomes the winner, the big winner, creates a winner's circle for everybody to come. But he does that by what? Losing everything. Losing everything. And this idea of self-emptying, kenosis is the word here that Paul uses, that, that though being in the very nature and likeness of God, didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to, but emptied himself, like of all that privilege. In contemplative spirituality, this is the very core of it, is self-emptying. It's ridding yourself of ego. It's ridding yourself of resentments and judgments and logistics and desires. You name it, it is emptying yourself of it. 
How many of y'all like to be right? Let me ask you this question. How many of y'all like to be wrong? Okay, we'll get to the heart of the issue that way, all right? You got to empty yourself of that. I don't, I, you got to be okay with being wrong. Here's the truth is, you don't mind being wrong. You just don't want other people to think you're wrong. You can know you're right. They can think you're wrong, and you will exhaust yourself. You will go crazy ruining relationships so they can know that, that you're right, even though you know they're right. Oh, man, can know, so you got to self-empty yourself of that. That's what Jesus did. Right? But that's the idea in a contemplative spiritual walk that is constantly emptying myself, freeing myself from things. It, it ties into what Dennis shared last week about what real freedom is, is the ability right, not to do whatever we want. But there's a side of real freedom even in this ability to say, I can give up whatever I am. I can self-empty myself of everything. I don't have to hold on to everything super tight. I don't have to be right. I can just exist and live in love. And I can let that existence exalt me. And I can let that existence give me a name, <laughs> right? And, and you know what? People might think I'm wrong. People might think this. People might think I'm being a doormat. People might think all this stuff. But here's the thing. I'm constantly emptying myself of that which would hold on to me, of what I think greatness is. I've got to lay that down. I've got to empty myself. Pour it out. Pour it out. Now, Jesus taught his followers, his disciples, this idea of kenosis, of self-emptying. But the words he would use would be losing and finding life. Same principle. Right? So, so Jesus, the rabbi, would inform and talk about his disciples, and he would say things like this in Matthew 10 and in Matthew 16. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For those who want, and he said in Matthew 16, the same thing, Matthew uses this probably something that Jesus would say often, for those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. So the very teachings of the earthly Jesus were grounded in this idea of continually emptying yourself out, emptying yourself out of that vanity, emptying yourself out of the pride of the ego. And so here's, as we finish up this series, here's the thing, don't miss this. In Christ, I think what Paul is teaching the Philippians and where the wisdom is for us is that the winner's circle, the real winner's circle where greatness is really found is filled with total losers. Because it's when we lose ourselves. I wanted to play that Eminem song. You gotta lose yourself. The music, the moment, you gotta, you know, that's what I wanted to do, but I thought that might be too much, you know. Now you got it in your head. You're welcome. It's a little earworm for you. But you, you do, like, that's, that's, that's the Jesus path. Now you wanna talk about a path that's hard to follow, that's narrow? There it is. I know a lot of people that have prayed a sinner's prayer, but have never learned about self emptying. They've never learned about living towards the neighbor. They're still holding on to the egoic reality of the self and life and me, and I've got to be right, and here's my doctrines, and here's the things, and, all stuff, and you're not in, and I'm in, and it's totally anti-Christ. There's something so difficult about living a life of being willing to lay down our rights. I have the right to be right. <laughs> but that's what the eternal Christ did. That's what in faith, Paul would profess and would say a community has to be grounded around. Like just as the divine logos laid down all of these divine rights, took on flesh, served and loved the world, that's the call. That's what John 3.16 is really all about. For God so loved the world that God gave God's self. 
and God gave the only Son so that everyone who believes in Him might not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. See, there's a salvation that's needed right now. There's a way of life that God is calling people to right now that ends the death and destruction that we see that's grounded in hatred and fear, that the fruit of is what we see happening yesterday in Colorado Springs. What Scripture is telling us, what Jesus is telling us, I think the deeper reality is that there is a way of living that is actually death, and there's a way of dying that is actually living. That there's a resurrection that takes place in our hearts and our lives when we're willing to die to self, die to the flesh, Paul's language. But it's always this self-emptying. It's always done out of free will. It's always done out of choice, never out of obligation, not even in response to love, but as an act of love. It's just this, this choice to live into a call, to be set apart. These are all like Bible words that we've used to like prop ourselves up as good theological people who get to go to heaven and other people don't. And, and that just perpetuates violence in the world. Why would people not go around killing people now if you believe in a God that eventually is just going to kill them? See, there's a problem. It's not just, it's not just innocent differences, right? So there is a way of living that is dying, and there's a way of dying that is living. And these biblical metaphors of death and life and resurrection, they're powerful, and they have meaning, and they speak to a salvation for this moment, for today. And then there's one for tomorrow, and there's one for the next day, and there's one for the next day. It's for this world. And so this salvation for the world comes through the self-emptying that's modeled by Jesus through the death and resurrection. So Jesus offers a salvation for us. Undoubtedly, I believe that. And that salvation is from what Paul describes as selfish ambition, as empty conceit is what it was translated in the text I used. That actual Greek word is a very fascinating little word that's only used one time in the entire New Testament. And this little word is related to kenosis, it's kenodoxia, and it's related to the word kenosis, and it all has this emptying self, right? So Paul's chosen this word very, very specifically, and we would never get it in an English translation. But he's saying, listen, here's the thing. There is an empty glory. <laughs> Don't pursue it. But there is an emptying of self that is modeled by Jesus. Pursue that. That's what he's saying. So the vain glory, the emptiness, right? Very, very unique word, only used once. It's like empty praise. It's a hollow opinion. It has this idea, right? The word is actually describing something that feels real in appearance, but it's actually not. Like vainglory, like, like it's somebody who says, you know, uh, gives you a compliment, and they're just doing it to get you to leave. <laughs> it's not really a compliment, but it feels like one, right? That's the idea here. It's describing an essence of something, right? But it's, it's not real. So there's winning and there's success that can be lived and it can feel very real and very good, but it's not real. It's actually a way of death. And here's the question. If we're only living for that which ends with death, are we not dead already? If we are only living as human beings, forget about your faith. 
Forget about whether you're agnostic or atheist or Muslim or Christian or Hindu, whatever it might be. If at the end of the day, we're only living for what ends at death, aren't we already dead? And so Jesus offers a path to life, real life, eternal life. That's the Bible word for it. And so Jesus' path to greatness, to true freedom that Paul talked about, to real influence, like, like Rod talked about, to real modeling of it, is kenosis, self-emptying. It's the mind of Christ. That's the mentality of Jesus. You know how you have that little inner voice in your head? Anybody got one of those? Right? You're, you're driving along and your spouse goes, what are you thinking about? You're having a conversation with yourself, you know, working it all out, solving the problems of the world. Well, inside of Jesus' mind, according to Paul, the little voice was, how do I empty myself in this situation? How do I empty myself out for the good of others? How do I do that? How do I do that? So in this cultural moment, in this reality, in this time, as people who live in Colorado, people who live wherever you're tuning in from, What does that mean for you and for me? How do I live this out in my everyday normal life? Well, here's the thing. We're an ownership people, right? You all own stuff. I own stuff. I like owning stuff. It's not a bad thing, right? But here's the thing. One of the hardest, most difficult things that we have to do right now, which no one in Jesus's ministry, right? All of the followers of Jesus, for the most part, the people he was ministering to, they never would have to even think about this. You got to empty yourself of ownership rights. Because Jesus is working with people who didn't have any ownership rights. They were the poorest of the poor, probably. But now, the gospel message, thank you, Constantine, has been institutionalized, has been become a way of wealth, and now we're on top. And when you're on top, when you start off as, a, as an underdog, when you start off with no power, and then those texts that are written with no power <laughs> become the people of power, bad things happen. Because you can say things like, oh, it was the Jews who crucified Jesus because you have no power. You're trying to figure out your reality. But now the people who have the power read those same texts and they become ways in which we do horrible, horrible things to Jewish people. And so we have to recognize that the gospel is always being renewed. It's always challenging us to a new way of kenosis, the principle of self-emptying. What do I have to empty myself of? Every generation has to ask this question. I know it sounds so weird to say it or to hear it, but the gospel evolves. It evolves within the text itself of the Bible if you read it carefully. But the heart of it stays the same. It's kenosis, self-empty. So in our moment, it's ownership rights. Most of us in here are middle class, upper middle class, white people. Most are heterosexual. It's emptying ourselves of the, the ownership rights, the things that we use to set ourselves apart that would cause me to think I'm better than you. That's the gospel. That's why it's so hard. If you don't think it's hard, go out and use the word privilege somewhere. Tell people to set aside their privilege. Even though it's right there in Philippians chapter 2, the exact word, who being there, set aside divine privilege. You go to just about any white evangelical church and you talk about emptying yourself of privilege, you'll find out how difficult the gospel is in this day and age with ownership. So we empty ourselves of ownership rights. So here's the thing. We lose an ownership mentality and we embrace a stewardship mentality. Now here's what I'm not saying. Everybody tune in. I'm not saying don't own anything. Some of you are like, oh, thank God. (laughs) 
I'm not telling you to go sell everything, give it to, no, own stuff. But change the mentality. Empty yourself of the rights of ownership. Because ownership is a temporary ambition that ends with death, right? And it creates this idea, if I just have it, then I'll be great on people who love me and blah, blah, blah. But we're going to lose it all. So, okay, how do I start living with the stuff that I own right now in conjunction with the Spirit of God? Like, how does all my stuff become opportunities to do what? Serve others. So if I self-empty myself of ownership rights and I let a neighbor borrow my prized hedge clippers (laughs) and they don't return them, oh, see, Kenosis says it was never mine to begin with. See, that's the ownership right. It doesn't mean you don't go ask for them back. It just means if you don't get them back, it means if they all of a sudden treat you like an enemy and they sell it and they lie to you, you love them. You love them. That's the path of Jesus. Oh, but Ryan, that's not realistic. Of course it's not realistic. (laughs) That's why we need Jesus. (laughs) If it were realistic, everybody would do it. Nobody would have anything. We would just share everything but I get it. It's not realistic. So we see everything in our lives. Kenosis, emptying ourselves of ownership rights, sees everything as a resource to serve and obey. Love. Not Ryan, not the church, not my idea of God, but love. That's 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 what obedience is, I think. I think we've because we've institutionalized Jesus and turned into a religion and we have all these power structures, it's really dangerous that we end up serving man and, and, and serving leadership and power and we've been manipulated. So I just don't like to use that word anymore in certain cases. So don't obey God because you're just obeying my interpretation of God. Obey love. What does love ask of you to do with your prized hedge clippers? What does love require of you? Because there is nothing more valuable than the human heart, than another person. So see it all as a resource, right? And then I want to encourage you to empty yourself of your credential rights. (laughs) So whatever credentials you have, whatever titles and positions you hold, they come with rights, right? You're the CEO. That means you don't have to do certain things anymore. That's what the world would tell you. You have this title, so other people do those things. I don't have to do those things anymore. But here's the thing, titles and all that stuff, it's facades, they fade, they end at death, right? So Kenosis says, I empty myself of that, and I jump in, and I serve where there's a need, regardless of my title. Am I telling you to give up your title? No, you worked hard for that. Absolutely not. Give up the right, the privilege, and just be willing to serve. It's a whole movement in leadership that started in the 70s called servant leadership. Right? Like, where did this idea come from, you know? It's interesting that Jesus told the disciples, there's this great story, he says, don't let anybody call you father. You have one. Like, there's a danger in titles, is what he's saying, right? There's a danger in titles. So we empty ourselves of the privilege that comes with that, because that's what Jesus did. So our gifts and our talents, right, become resources to love our neighbor, regardless of our titles, regardless of what we should or shouldn't do, regardless of your position at your work. You're always looking for those places to serve. That's the path to greatness. And here's how this makes the world a better place. This is kind of the duh, duh, duh moment of the whole series. How in the world could serving one another make the world better? 
how could it make me a better person? <laughs> but here's what I think the whole thing in Philippians is saying is quite interesting, that the more we lay ourselves down, the more we empty ourselves of all that stuff, the more we humble ourselves, love, God, lifts us up. I'm not going to sing the song, don't worry. Who sang that, love lifts us up where we belong? I feel like it's Kenny G. But Kenny G was a saxophone player, so it couldn't have been him, right? <laughs> who sang love? Was it, who was that? Love lift us up where we belong, where the eagles fly, on a mountain high. Kenny Rogers? Maybe. It's a great song. It's true, right? The more we humble ourselves and serve love, love lifts us up. That's what happened to Jesus. And because Jesus did it to the fullness, right? That's why he's given the name above all names. To every knee should bow, every tongue confess. What does that actually mean in real life, real world? It means that we're actually bending the knee to love, that we're actually taking on love as the mantra, that we're actually living to serve one another. Every knee would bow to that and recognize that's where healing takes place. So we're wrapping up this series. As we do this right now, we've got this song. And this song is called, I Don't Know If I Believe It. <laughs> I love that title, right? I feel like that could have been my theme song for the last 10 years of my faith, right? It says, I don't know if I believe it. And this song resonates with a lot of people, and there's a lot of different lyrics, and it resonates for different reasons. But it is true. Like, there's a side of you, if you've lived in this world, you're like, I don't know if I believe that if I empty myself of all my authority, all my rights, that somehow I'll have greatness. But here's the thing. You might not ever see it here. You might not ever even know it. But there's a faith that says that impact will last forever. The impact that I have in my work in my family because I love them and sacrifice for them, for my friends, for my enemies, like that legacy continues on. And so there's a couple of lyrics, there's two particular parts of this song that I just want to highlight as they play. And, and it, it just do me a favor, put your, put your connect card away, put your talk notes away, even put your offering envelope away. Could you imagine a pastor saying, I just set it aside for a few minutes. We'll do all that later. As this song is sung over us today, there's a couple of lyrics I just want you to kind of let into your heart. One says, I don't know how to receive all that you give. It's fascinating. This lyric, this idea that I don't know how to receive all that God has for me, all that I have. And I wonder if we don't know how to receive more into our lives because our lives are so full of ourselves, we don't have any room for it. That maybe the only way that we can actually receive what is all around us, what is trying so hard to break into our lives is to actually empty ourselves first so that we have room for God. Because although we live and move and have our being, you and I both know we can go through seasons in life and we can look around us and we can say there are people and I have been one of those people that makes the choice not to live in that because I filled my life with so many other things. I filled my life with fear of the other. I fill my life with anxiety towards someone. I fill my life with this or that. And I have to empty myself of all that stuff so that then this radical, mysterious love can be poured into me. And I just wonder if maybe that's the hidden truth in this song. I don't know how to receive it. And maybe given our topic today, <laughs> receiving starts by emptying. And then there's this kind of exhausted moment in the song that I think is a prayer. And it's like this scream almost that just says, if I surrender, if I surrender all, would you catch me? Would you catch me? If I surrender all and bring all that I am. And I think these are metaphors. 
for the reality of what love and what the greatest reality, what we call God, can do. But man, that's a leap. <laughs> and I think it's the key until I fully surrender everything to love. We, we would say in the Christian tradition, until you fully surrender everything to Jesus, till we bring all of myself to that reality, I just can't receive the goodness that's available to me in this life, in this moment. And it's a scary thought to bring all of ourselves in faith to love and sacrifice and letting other people think we're wrong. <laughs> to trusting that I don't have to make everybody believe like I believe, do as I do. I can just exist in the goodness of God and the love of God. It's a scary thought to do that. It's a scary thought to exchange my glory for the glory of God. But I actually think that's the invitation of Jesus. I think that's always been the invitation of Jesus because I think that's what will save the world. So take a few moments and just breathe in this song and then I'll come back and we'll receive the offering. But don't fill out the offering. Don't fill out your card right now. Just be in this moment with this song.